before we jump into this conversation, just a quick word of thanks to the good folks over at the Quilty Nook. Without your support and encouragement, projects like this wouldn't be possible. You're listening to Seamside, where we explore the inner work of textiles. I'm your host, Zach Foster, and each episode I sit down and sew with a different artist, and we talk about what working with cloth has taught us about being human. I hope you enjoy. And before we jump into this conversation with Jin Mao, let me just say that I have so thoroughly enjoyed reading all your kind words that you left in reviews on Apple Podcasts. Take this one, for example. This one comes from Classic A House, who says, what's not to love? Seamside's host, Zach, (laughs) that's me, leads us on a relaxed, engaging, and thoughtful talk about making stuff with textiles. It feels like sitting down with an old friend. Big ideas are explored in a real world, down to earth, and approachable way. Good stuff, says Classic A House. Thank you so much. I really do read all these reviews and treasure them. So if you got a moment, I'd really appreciate you leaving one on Apple iTunes, because then that's how other folks can discover the magic that is Seamside. And now, without further ado, Jen Mao. I have been a fan of Jennifer Mao's weavings for quite a while now, and I think you will be too. Each week, she releases one weekly weaving that she's made, and on which she's embroidered some kind of thoughtful phrase or word. So listen up to hear what she has to say about how weaving helps her close the gaps in her own life. We talk about the gift economy, based largely on a book that both of us just happened to be reading at the time, a book called The Gift by Lewis Hyde. And lastly, we talk about how artists help capture the spirit of the people in a way that nothing else can. So give this a listen. I hope you find something good out of this, and I'll be back at the end with a few words. Good morning, Jen. Good morning. Thank you so much for joining me. Can you do us a favor? Can you kind of paint the scene for us a little bit? What do you see? I see you're sitting beside your window. What do you see looking out that window? Mm. Yeah, so I am in my apartment in Brooklyn, sitting in my kitchen. And um, because it's a Brooklyn apartment, there are very few windows. You have to take maximum advantage of any light that comes in in the mornings. So I'm looking out over my fire escape um, and there's uh, an alleyway of yards, essentially of the backsides of all of the buildings in my block. So you can sort of see up and down and see who is, you know, doing their laundry or who is, you know, having a little walk around their backyard. Um, And I'm also looking up because, oh, we're supposed to get snow today, I heard. So in the next hour, I'll be periodically glancing out to see whether or not we'll get lucky. I'm crossing my fingers for you. It's snowing a little bit here in the, the mountains of North Carolina this morning. Just a little bit. Just enough to sit on top of the leaves. You know? oh, so magical. Tell us what you brought to work on this morning. So what I'm working on today is a weaving for a friend of mine who's entering a stage of transition in her life. So I completed the weaving itself last week um, and I used some hand-dyed indigo yarn that has a little bit of an ombre to it, um, which reminds me a lot of water and waves. Um, So now I'm moving on to the final stage, which is embroidering a written phrase onto it. Um, So yeah, I'm thinking that it will be a good a good piece for our conversation today as an anchor, because um, I'm thinking a lot about, yeah, the place that art or making objects can have when you're trying to find your way out of a storm. Exactly, exactly. I am really looking forward to digging in deep with your process because I've been a fan for a long time and you're doing some things that I don't see other people doing. So I know that this is gonna be a, an interesting hour together. I'm working on a little tiny quilt and it's a mix of fabric. It is um, a little bit of indigo that I dyed myself. So we have that in common and some Boro fabric from Japan that somebody sent me that's hundred years old and also some yellow calico fabric. That's about a century old that came from the back of some old quilt that somebody gave me. So I'm just bringing them together with some other fabrics and we'll see where it ends up. It's just a little baby at this point. 
It's just two little patches sewn together. So we'll see what it looks like in an hour. Oh, I'm very excited for the after, uh, quote unquote, after <laughs> stage in an hour or so. Oh, yeah. Get ready for it. Get ready for it. Well, Jen, tell us a little bit about your weaver. Why weaving? How'd you get started with that? Mm -hmm. Yeah, so I really haven't been weaving for that long in the grand scheme of things. I started at the very, very beginning of the pandemic. So at that point, that was March or April of 2020. And it's not in such, you know, it's not so, so long ago. So I think everyone listening can remember how profoundly isolating and how disconnected we all felt at that point. And so we were at this fissure where we were all falling through the cracks of things and we weren't sure what was on the other side. And I was feeling this disconnect between my, my old life, my new life, uh, between myself physically and the world. And so I really started weaving as a way of trying to close that gap that I was feeling between myself and the world. And so there were a lot of things about weaving, I think, that sort of coalesced together and really grabbed a hold of me during that really fragile time where there was connection to the materials, thinking about, you know, the cotton or the linen that led to the yarn that I was using and that really vast and complicated supply chain network that brought it to my apartment um, and all of the people along the way really that made that possible, right? And then there is the other piece of the piece of the equation, which was that I it gave me something to uh, occupy my hands, this meditative sort of repetitive motion. And I think too, there was a sense of I think there was a, a sense of reassurance in having this really limited sense of control where if I put in my effort towards this action of weaving, I'll be able to shape that outcome. Even if for so many other things, it's really out of my hands. So I think that that was really the entry point for me where you know, perhaps if weaving had found me at a different phase in my life, it wouldn't have taken a hold of me in quite the same way. Um, but I really do think that it was um, a right place, right time sort of situation. And so since then, weaving has really been an entry point into a lot of different kinds of conversations and explorations. And so that has been, um, yeah, really a joy too. And that's so much of what we're talking about, right? Like the inner work of textiles and how our contact and our handling of fabric and fibers somehow puts us in touch with something deeper and gives us another understanding about ourselves that we wouldn't have had with another medium. I heard you use the phrase closing the gap just a moment ago. And I love that visual because I'm thinking as a quilter and I'm thinking about like the, 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 the metaphorical properties of quilting. I think I would have said that quilting helps me piece things together, right? Mm -hmm. To bring together disparate parts and make some unified whole. And closing the gap is similar in the idea, but it, it, it calls to mind sitting at a loom and working with, is it the weft that goes back and forth? And mm -hmm. like pulling down the weft fibers, right? To close those gaps and to make something whole and entire. It's a beautiful image. Yeah, I love this visual of assembly, assemblage also, because I think for quilting, there's this act of choosing too, right? Like earlier when you were just describing the three or four different materials that you were choosing to bring together, it feels serendipitous in some ways, right? In that, you know, when you were taking that step back and thinking about, okay, what are the things that are speaking to me that I think should go together and how should they go together? I feel like there are so many parallels between that and how we make our lives, right? Yeah.
when you're pulling together a weaving, how do you, what's your basic approach? Like, how do you start with fiber and color? And then let's kind of work our way with an eye on the, the phrasings that you put, that you embroider into your weavings in the end. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so I think my approach has really been, I need to think about, I need to think about an animal analog. I think that it's like a being a magpie. So often, you know, I have this collection, this pretty formidable collection of lots of different types of yarns that um, I've amassed from various places that all have different histories. I have uh, varying levels of connection, right, and backstory to all of those things. And so, um, so part of choosing those materials has to do with taking that step back and figuring out, okay, at this place in time, knowing that I am who I am at this place in time, what are the things that are really standing out to me? And so that's one thing that tends to be pretty intuitive about the process where the things that I might choose one day or things that might jump out to me one day might be completely different than what it might be another day. And so I really do like that time capsule element of making that choice. And that's sort of how I, that's how I began. And then there's all of the preparation that goes into, you know, once you've chosen the yarn, uh, the yarn really, you know, getting that dressed and onto the loom so that you can really begin. And, and the work that I see you making primarily that what you share on Instagram are smaller weavings, you know, maybe 12 inches by 12 inches, something like that. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, Would you say that's mm -hmm. the bulk of what you do? Yeah, so that has been the most consistent question, um, or I guess the most consistent practice that I've been exploring over the past year, so 2021, need to think about that for a minute, 2021 was the last year. And it started out um, at the very beginning when I was learning to weave and really trying to get my footing on the technical aspects of weaving, uh, that it made sense to sample. And so for all of the weavers that are listening, you probably can relate to the idea that you have an idea in your head around the way that two different kinds of yarn or maybe even one kind of yarn will interact with itself once it's on the loom. But in order to really know, you have, you have to just do it. And so, uh, you know, all of the uh, quote unquote best practices of weaving tells you oh, before you start a project that feels really precious or important to you and before you really use all of your yarn do a little sample um, you know weave a you know weave a 12 inch by 12 inch uh, piece just to see what it looks like when it's not under tension and once you've wet finished it and once it's made the transformation into cloth and so and so I had so many small pieces of fabric when I was first starting to weave. And in the very beginning, they were explorations into seeing what this particular type of 8-4 cotton would look like if I wove it at a certain density and then used a different sort of bamboo yarn as the weft and so I had you know this pile so I had so many pieces of fabric that were too small to even be functionally usable you know they were too small to be towels I guess they could have been used as trivets or so anyway I had I had this this pile of fabric and the piece the pile was very precious to me right I had spent so much time and effort to make the thing. And I knew what went into making the thing. And at the end of the day, I had a thing that really 
wasn't quite wasn't quite anything and so and so the the evolution into the weekly weavings that um, that you see on Instagram that I'd been doing weekly was my effort into transforming those quote unquote unusable or not quite fully formed pieces into something else that could feel meaningful or could feel resonant or could feel like a vessel for something else that I was trying to work through in my mind. What I what first drew me to your work in particular, Jen, was the fact that not only are the weavings themselves beautiful, but that you embroider phrases week after week into these these square weavings that you're making. Can you tell us a little bit about the the origin of that? Yeah, so at the very beginning, um, like I mentioned before, I had this pile of small pieces of fabric that were staring at me accusingly from a corner of my of my apartment. And I I knew that I I wanted to transform them into something. And that was around the time where no one was really leaving their apartments. Um, we were all very much sheltered in place. And so I was doing a lot of reading at that time. Um, I was I was doing a lot of reading. I was listening to a lot of podcasts. I was revisiting some of the artists and poets that really have anchored me at various points in my life. So I was really finding myself returning to a lot of the things that I had half metabolized or sort of half ingested. And I wanted to come back again to really say, okay, what, what does, what does this painting mean to me now? Or what does this poem mean to me now at this point in time? And so I really had so many ideas floating around my head at that point. And many of those ideas were phrases or concepts or ideas that I was working through. And the first phrase that I ever embroidered on a piece of cloth uh, which was, I think, the very beginning of this idea that turned into the weekly meetings that I do now, was a Jenny Holzer truism. And she is a conceptual artist that has these short, pithy phrases that she will then uh, chisel into a granite bench or will project as a hologram onto a building. And these phrases are, they, they have this feeling of like delicious ambiguity where when you hear that phrase, you, you can't get it out of your mind. And so the, the phrase that I could not get out of my mind at that time was in your dream, you saw a way to survive and you were full of joy. And there was something about that phrase at that time where we were all really just trying so hard to exist that I was trying to get out of my head. And so I embroidered it onto this weaving. And in doing so, it really allowed me to sit with the idea. It allowed me to think about what that phrase meant to me at that time, which was very different from you know, what it what might have meant to me 10 years ago when I first learned about her work. And so that was the beginning 
of really thinking about how to take this weaving and really apply a different layer of meaning to it so that in the best case scenario, the whole is greater than the sum of its parts, which may have some analogs to how you think about quilting, maybe. Oh, 100%. I was just talking to some folks last night about kind of the magic of color or how, how I pick fabrics, essentially, when I'm at, let's say, a thrift store or something. And I say that I shop simultaneously with my eyes and my hands. Hmm. That I'm seeing fabric and I'm feeling fabric to decide what I want to work with. And that I'm, I, will more, I will more quickly pick up a fabric that feels good than a fabric that just looks good but feels kind of, I don't know, synthetic or something in my hand. You know, for me, the, the tactile mm -hmm. sensation is more important than the visual. And the reason for that is I believe that color has this magic to it, that the color of a piece of fabric or yarn might not be anything super special in and of itself, but when combined and put in a certain context with other colors, really allows it to shine forth and you see a different side of it. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Right. And then there's this whole other dimension for quilting that I don't often think about with my weavings, which is how that thing will feel if you are wrapping it around yourself or if you're pulling it over your body at night. So yeah, I, I love I love that. It's sort of like thinking about the jump between a two-dimensional thing and a three-dimensional thing. And yeah, how how that brings with it a whole different set of considerations. Yeah, quilts are flat sculptures. And that's one of the things that got me and my two friends, Heidi Parks and Luke Haynes, talking on a monthly basis with our soft bulk conversations. The idea of soft bulk is just kind of a, uh, a poetic acknowledgement to the fact that quilts aren't just flat objects that you spread out on a bed, but when you wake up in the morning and you throw that quilt off the bed onto the floor, or however you start your day, it becomes this whole lumpy mass that is transformed by the way that it's now situated. You know, so I, I like mm -hmm. the idea that quilts do have a bulkiness that we don't always recognize and they definitely a softness. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. And there's that idea too, where if you're throwing that quilt off the foot of your bed, it's also sort of gained the patina or this additional layer of having lived with you for another day, right? So there's the physical bulk and then there's sort of the symbolic uh, or the psychic layer too of this cloth having lived another day with you. Which for me is a large part of what I think about when I think of my burial quilts that I work on. Right, Because for me, a burial quilt is not just a quilt that you make for that one last day that your body's going to be on this planet. Right, It's a quilt that you make and you live with for hopefully years and years and years. You have it on your bed, you're wrapped up in it, you and your sweet pea are cuddling up in it, and you are infusing that special quilt with a little bit of your day-to-day -day magic. You know, As you go through life, you're accruing that kind of bulk, so to speak, from that moment of conception to that last moment. Yeah, absolutely. I love I love your burial quilts and the idea that you have this really comforting memento mori of, okay, this is the quilt that I know that I want to be buried in. Um, and it can be something that feels joyful and not somber and that just, or maybe not even joyful, it feels matter of fact, feels like a thing that you're just integrating into your day along with breathing or drinking water. Mm -hmm. So I, I, I love, I love those burial quilts. Uh, I, I see them as an acknowledgement of a surefire thing. You know, it's gonna happen. You might as well mm -hmm. be ready for it. And mm -hmm. I tell you, I, when I sat down to make my, my first burial quilt, um, didn't start out as a burial quilt. It actually was, I was working on this quilt and it was just, I looked at it 
and the color palette and the motif it had all these red sevens on it the motif all of it just felt like the most me quilt that i'd ever made and something about seeing myself so much reflected in this one singular piece made me think ah there we go this is this is the quilt that i'm going to be wrapped up in one of these days and because of the red seven motif i gave it i call it jackpot you know like you're at the casino and you're playing the jackpot (laughs) the slot machines and so getting to the idea of like it doesn't have to be a somber affair like we have there there are good and valid and plenty of reasons to be concerned and to be worried and to be aware of what's happening in life but there's also we have a lot to be thankful for and a lot to be grateful for and so I, i think about that when I see old jackpot folded up in the corner of my bedroom, I'm like, hey, buddy, here we mm. go. Living life. <laughs> yep, absolutely. So the first burial quilt that you made was your own. Mm. Yep. I had no idea. I yeah. love that. Now, you take these weekly weavings and you've set up kind of a, a pay-as-you-wish structure. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah. So at the time when I um, was making these weekly weavings and it started out in on January 1st of 2021, and it is today the only sort of resolution adjacent thing that I've ever done and ever followed through on. <laughs> um, but at the time I wanted to commit to the practice of making one weaving per week. And at that time, the structure or the constraint of saying, I'm going to do one of these per week felt really important to me at a time that felt really unstructured in every other facet of what was going on for me at that time. And once I had made the thing, I was less interested in setting up a business or selling it on Etsy or or even selling it conventionally as a whole because I, I felt as if I was making them based on an internal compulsion where I was making one of these things weekly and they were also coming from a place of abundance where I was acknowledging that I had the ability to be home and I was having the ability to have a little bit of extra time outside of my day job right in order to do something else and so it didn't feel right to me to sell them like uh, a commodity, right? Like when you would get, you know, your, I, I don't know, your pint of ice cream at the corner bodega. And so I wanted them to feel accessible. I wanted them to feel like a thing that I wanted to go to someone who would value it and I wanted those weavings to find a permanent home with someone who could make a connection or had a connection to the thing. And so that's sort of how I ended up with this pay what you wish, where I didn't want the financial cost to be a barrier for someone who saw a weaving and for whatever reason, it really resonated with them. And and I think that the idea of pay what you wish, I feel really, really connected to in so many ways, just outside of outside of this practice, the idea that people should be able to have what they need at a level that is accessible to them that money should not should not be the the barrier there i think that's beautiful i think that's beautiful so you you over the course of 2021 
you made these weekly weavings. Is that something you're continuing to do in the new year? I've decided to, yes. Yeah, I I haven't gone as, I, I think that it will be, continue to be a weekly cadence for 2022. Mm-hmm. And I'm also open to the idea that the practice might evolve or shift. So I sometimes have ideas around what a thing will be and the actual reality of it turns out to be very different. So I'm setting the loose intention that I'll be continuing the practice for 2022. My friend Laura Hartrick might call that a soft goal. I like that idea. Have a soft goal. <laughs> yeah, in 2021, it felt very important to me to mm-hmm. set a hard goal. Mm-hmm. And so that was the thing that I said, okay, I'm going to make one per week all year. And then I had a moment last week where I took that step back and said, I, I did it. So Jen, you and I both recently read or are reading the same book, totally coincidentally. And it's called The Gift, Creativity and the Artists and the Modern World by Lewis Hyde. And it was published in the early 80s. And so it's coming up on its 40th anniversary very soon. But what drew me to this book was, at this time, I think, was my own questions about how to make a living through what we make and doing what we love and how to mm, do it in a way that feels uh, right, for lack of a better word. You know, that it just, just feels of a piece with everything else that we do in our lives. One of the ideas that I wanted to talk to you about, because I feel like it's so, it's almost the foundation of your, of your work, it sounds like, is that the author in The Gift talks about the difference between a gift and a commodity that as a gift, things have certain powers, and as a commodity, they lose certain powers. How do you think about that in terms of your own work? Yeah, I, first of all, it seemed, it seemed like fate that both of us were reading this book at the same time, um, because I was revisiting the ideas in this book, because at the end of a year of doing these weavings, I wanted to circle back to some of those foundational ideas that got it started in the first place. And so to me, the practice of doing pay what you wish weavings was my response to trying to find the both and between the gift versus commodity dichotomy that Lewis Hyde, the author, talks about in his book. And I wanted to believe that there were there there is a way for a piece of art to potentially thread the needle between those two things. And the idea of a gift as being something that was something that arrived to me as I made it as a gift right, this idea or the thing that I was trying to work through was a gift to me as the maker and how I could extend that logic towards creating a set of circumstances so that the thing that I made could pass along to somebody else and hopefully to feel like that thing was changing hands as part of a gift economy as as opposed to a commodity economy, right? So the idea of a commodity is that you go down to your corner store, you buy your pint of ice cream, there's no point of connection there, right? You exchange money at the till and that's that, right? You both yeah. go on your respective ways. But I think Lewis and, Hyde calls it a, a bond feeling. Right? There's no mm-hmm. bond feeling. It's just no everything's even. You take your mm-hmm. thing, you give up your cash, the score is settled, you leave the bodega with your ice cream. Exactly. Right. A ballot. And the idea of pay what you wish, part of these questions that I was asking and questions that I ask for anyone who wants to potentially claim one of these meetings is to think about naming a price 
that feels in concert with the value that the weaving would have to them. And value is a little different than price. And in doing that thinking and arriving at whatever amount that amount is, I really wanted to encourage that process for the receiver so that when that weaving arrives in your hands, you might have paid a certain amount for it. And I would hope that the weaving would have a certain kind of significance or a certain kind of resonance that you might not have for a commodity that you bought for the same amount, right? So at the end of the day, it really is a little bit less about the price that you pay, but you know the process by which that thing arrives into your hands. And if the receiver of a weekly weave could then apply some of those questions to how they interact towards other things in their lives, then to me, that would also be such, such an incredible gift to pass along to. I'm curious to know, for folks that are interested in perhaps doing something similar as a pay-as-you-wish structure, kind of the um, how you set it up. And I, I offer as a, as a corollary to an experiment that I've tried with pricing quilts is to try to think of, you know, I talked, I talked to a prospective client about what they want in a quilt, a memory quilt, let's say. And I say, okay, okay, okay. I hear what they want. And I say that that'll probably take me 40 hours to make that quilt. And I've tried this experiment. I'm not altogether happy with it, but I like what it's getting at. And that is, I say, okay, so if it takes me 40 hours, think about what that might be worth to you. What are, what are 40 hours worth in your life? And then whatever, whatever number you come up with is fine with me. You know, the reason I, I, I like that because it keeps it at a common denominator, right? Like what is the value of time? My time is not necessarily worth more than your time, financially speaking. Right. But what I, what makes me feel a little bit uncomfortable with it is that I had a conversation once with a client who I don't know what they did for a living, but they weren't making a ton of money, you know? And so to ask them what 40 hours means to them felt like it might've put them in a place that they were uncomfortable talking about, you know? And so mm-hmm. I don't know, I'm, I'm not altogether happy with that pricing structure, but I do like where it points, you know, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. as a way of, as opening the conversation, making work accessible. So how do you set up your pay-as-you-wish? How does that work on a weekly basis when you drop a new weaving? Yeah, so when I drop a new weaving, and this has morphed and evolved over the course of the year, um, for the early weavings, I wanted to make it as quote-unquote fair as possible. And so for the first few weavings, it was whoever messaged me first. And um, to claim a weaving, someone only needs to send me a direct message through Instagram with the amount that they want to pay. And that's by design. I did not want someone to have to comment in a public forum how much they wanted to pay, right? I wanted it to be a really intimate or private conversation. And so how it worked at the beginning was that whoever messaged me first was the person that I would send it to. And it worked well enough for the early days. And over time, it got to a point where I would set a little reminder on my Instagram to say, okay, you know, as a reminder, every Friday, because Friday was the week of New Year's last year, every Friday. And then, you know, I'll say, and it's 7 p.m. Eastern. And at 7.01, I would receive multiple messages from folks. And so I then found myself in this weird quandary (laughs) where, I had to think about, well, you know, is it, is it still the first person who gets it? Do I 
really want to encourage an interaction that emphasizes scarcity and really causes people to feel tethered to their phones so that they can catch the thing, right? And so over time, I've started to become a little bit more relaxed where, you know, I don't really have a hard set of rules, but I will release the weaving and then I would go about the rest of my evening, whatever it was that I had planned, right? And I would purposefully put my phone away. I wouldn't, I wouldn't look at it. And then whenever I was in a place where I was done with whatever it was that I was doing, I would then open my phone. Sometimes it was a few hours later, sometimes it's the next day. And then at that point, I would take a look at any of the messages that I've received. And that was the point too, where I started to encourage people to optionally share why a piece may have spoken to them. To me, that gave me a way to, to choose if I was in a position where multiple people had reached out. And I liked that it was um, an act of generosity on the behalf of the person who was reaching out where so many people would tell me really personal, you know, and really intimate details about what that phrase or what that thing meant to them. And so that really helped me feel as if the weaving was going to a good home. And so that's sort of how the process of deciding who would receive weaves has evolved over the course of the past year. And I also tried to make a few other minute adjustments along the way where, you know, I used to call it, I used to call it a drop. And, and then I was, you know, thinking about that and how I didn't want this to be a thing that people would jump on because there's only one per week and I can pay potentially not a lot for it. And, you know, it's a, it's like a Black Friday deal. I did not want it to feel like a Black Friday deal. And so I started calling them releases. And to me, that felt a lot more representative of how I felt after I created the thing was that I would release it into the world. And hopefully it would find someone who uh, would really appreciate and value it. What I like about what I'm hearing you say, share about this process and especially how it's evolved over the course of the year is that you're really honing in on the bond feeling, right? That is talked about so much in the gift. The idea that for you, not only for the person who will end up with your weaving, but for you as well, you have a bond with the person that you end up giving it to. And that's something that you don't get when you just simply exchange cash. Absolutely. Now here's a question and you can answer it however you may like. When someone works a full-time job and does this on the side, you have a, a menu of options available to you as far as experimenting with pricing and different structures like this. Um, do you see yourself in the future ever trying to make a living off of what you make or have you given any thought to like how this might work in a different scenario where this was now your, your livelihood? That's such a good question because I think it's a central question that anyone who makes things faces at one point or another. And the way that I have set things up currently, because as you mentioned, I have a job that pays the bills that I am very fortunate to like. Um, and so in many ways, I can be my own patron. And the decisions that I make about my weaving practice can be made without consideration to how I will pay my rent or how I'll keep the lights on. And so it's been really valuable for me, I think, at least in the past year, for that to be the case in that 
I really could release a weaving into the world and make decisions about who would receive that weaving that might not necessarily be whoever offers the highest amount in a way that would potentially be difficult for someone who has to balance the checkbook at the end of the month, right? Which is a really difficult challenge, right? To try and reconcile these two things. So thinking about pay what you wish has been possible for me in a quote unquote pure conceptual sense has been possible for me because of my day job. And I'm not closed off to the idea of potentially thinking at one day in the near or far future, how to make that a a source of income. I think that that opens up an entirely new, different set of questions, um, which might show up differently in the work. Thinking about, right, your experiment earlier of how to value an hour or asking your clients to think about that, right? Um, But yeah, right now it's not on my immediate horizon. And I also will say that I think that so many of those questions are central and important in that when an artist makes something and there is time and labor and so much sort of hidden work behind making the thing that I think that there, I I admire artists who attempt to create that level of transparency to say, this thing that I've made might seem like quote unquote, a lot of money. And when you really break it down and you really think about all of the things that go into that, it feels like a totally appropriate amount or a totally reasonable amount to ask for, which of course doesn't resolve another central question of how do you make certain things that are considered quote unquote luxuries in our society accessible for folks. So I am really focused currently on that question and it doesn't quite touch the idea of how do we make a world where an artist can really sustain themselves from their work and not be a starving artist? How, how can we look at the health of our relationships with one another by looking at the health of our artists? Can the artist pay their rent? Can the artist live where they want to live? Can the artist put food on the table, right? Those are very, to me, fundamental human needs that should really be the floor at what anyone should be able to expect, right? Whether you are an artist or whether you are um, a person who delivers packages to whether you are an essential worker to whether you are a lawyer or a doctor. Everybody's got to eat. One of the things that really resonates with me about what you just said is the idea of being your own patron. Because I know that was a phrase that I used for myself for the years that I was teaching full-time and working because it allowed me not to be beholden to the market in terms of what I produce quote-wise. Now that calculus has had to shift now that I am full-time artist. And part of what I see happening in this new life that I'm living, I think I'm on day 108 or so of full-time artist. Part of what I see happening and that I hadn't expected was that I created this online creative community platform called the Quilty Nook. And it's priced, I think, in a very accessible, like seven bucks a month. And what that does, it allows me as an artist to create something of value for other artists, to to organize this creative community at economically a, a lower accessible threshold, right? In turn, it allows members of the community to be my patron and the work that I do, right? So I have this one engine that's creating a livelihood, a source of income for me that allows me then in the art that I make 
to be more flexible in my pricing. And that's something that for me is very important because I know the power of a memory quilt. I know the power of a burial quilt and a funeral quilt. You know, like I've, I've, I've had firsthand experience and I've heard stories from people. And so because they do have this inherent power to them, I want them accessible to the people that want them. Whether that means they can pay what I hope they would pay or whether they would pay what they can pay, either one, you know? So one of the beauties to me of the Quilty Nook is that it allows me that flexibility because I didn't want to go full-time art and then find myself hemmed in to the market and hemmed in, hemmed into the situation where I had to charge X for a quilt just to pay my bills. And so it's something that I remain very grateful for in the way that this new life is shaping up for me. Yeah. One, one thing that really strikes me about the Quilty Nook is that you've found a way to sustain the gift through creating this space for other people to connect to one another. So it's an extension of that bonding feeling, right, around this concept that is so important to all of you, right, this idea of quote making and the idea of creating relationships. And so I, yeah, I just have so much admiration for the solution that you found to a very, very thorny, seemingly intractable problem, right, of how how to make a living as an artist in the world. Yeah, it feels very much of a piece with my values and my experience of being in the classroom and no, having had 18 years of community organizing experience in the classroom. Now I get to bring that to bear in a, in a different situation. And it allows me to offer something that is of true value to the people in the community, because I feel like, I mean, I don't need to tell anybody, listen to this, we got to have our artists. Artists are essential to any culture. And artists also need to be able to put food on the table and food in their bellies, right? And this reminds me of, maybe this is the last thing I'd like to kind of run by you from the gift. But there's this passage, and I'll just read a couple sentences to give everybody a little bit of context. But in this passage, he's talking about what artists offer the world and it feels very um, important for this moment. So here goes. So long as the artist speaks the truth, he will, they will, whenever the government is lying or has betrayed the people, become a political force, whether they intend to or not. As witness American artists during the 1930s or during the Vietnam War, Spanish artists during their civil war, South Korean poets in recent years, and all Russian artists since the revolution. Bertolt Brecht as Hitler rose to power and so forth. And here comes the kicker. In times like these, the spirit of the polis, the people, at times like these, the spirit of the polis must be removed from the hands of the politicians and survive in the resistant imagination. Then, the artist finds they are describing a world that does not appear in the newspapers. And I'm going to leave it there. So I love this idea of the artist capturing the spirit of the polis when they don't see that spirit reflected in the messaging of our institutions and the powers that be as they look around. This is why we need artists. So how do we create an economy that allows people to be these mirrors, to be these messengers, to be these prophets that we need them to be? Yeah, the spirit of the polis is yeah, such a powerful idea because anyone who creates is inseparable from our times, right? So in that way, regardless of whether you are attempting to be a mirror um, or whether you're attempting to be a telescope looking out into science fiction or a future that isn't possible yet, it still is an encapsulation of who the person is who is making in the times that they are making them. So 
I know that the beginning of the quote makes a mention to art as being political. And I think I would agree with that thesis in that, I, and, and defining political as, as not partisan. Um, and I think certainly it's sort of taken a pejorative or like a really specific kind of meeting in our current context. But thinking about politics or thinking about the polis as having more to do with how our society is structured, right? The ways in which individual people and groups make decisions, what we value, who has power and agency, um, what stories do we tell ourselves and, and who gets to tell those stories. I find a lot of value in really thinking about and interrogating politics in that way, right? Because once you sort of pay attention to that underlying structure and how that structure informs how we move within it, the constraints that we have, it's, it's impossible to not consider that when you're making, at least in my, in my experience. So what is it about weaving for you, Jen, that feels so important in this time? Weaving feels so essential to me now in that before I started weaving, I really did not pay much attention to the textiles in my life or that surrounded me. They, they are so ubiquitous, right? They are so ingrained in, you know, the things that we wear or, you know, the textiles that we use, right? It's something that is so present that it's invisible. Weaving has helped me feel closer to something that is essential. There's, there's a quote that I love by the weaver Annie Albers, where she really talks about how living in a civilization separates us from materials, right? We receive the blender, um, you know, at the store and it's been fully formed, right? And we have no idea what went into making that. Um, or she talks about uh, the loaf of bread, right? When you buy it at the store, you're not connected to the flour. You're not connected to the farmer who grew the wheat, right? So there is, in a lot of ways, uh, a very isolating feeling that someone gets when you consume commodities. And Annie Albers talks about weaving as a way of getting closer to the adventure of being close to the stuff the world is made of. And the idea of being close to the stuff that the world is made of, to me, is one of the more important sensitivities that anyone should cultivate, regardless of whether or not they make things or not, right, to feel close to the world. And so during a time where we might be in more of a commodity economy than a gift economy, there seems to me to be a lot of a value in trying to get closer to that essential idea of how do we how do we create these bonds how how can we feel how can we feel close to the building blocks of things and how just being close to those building blocks inform how we can stay or get closer to one another i think that's beautiful i think i'll leave it there is it snowing outside yet? Not quite yet, but I am always holding out hope. <laughs> How's your sewing coming along on the other end? I've made progress on a few, a few letters here. So I've got a ways to go yet, but I think that this is such a good time capsule of the last hour that we've spent together. And I just really like the idea of when this weaving makes it over to someone else that it'll contain that, that moment in time. And we'll share an image of that when we post the podcast so people can see what you've been working on. I've gotten my tiny quilt patchwork all complete. So it's about a hand-sized piece of maybe four or five different fabrics. 
And so now I'm really excited to go iron it so that it sits flat and I can get it bound up. I'll share a picture of that too. But every time I look at this, I'll think of our conversation. Thank you so much, Jen. Thank you so much for allowing me to kick off my week in such a delightful way. If you enjoyed that conversation as much as I did, I'm wondering if you'll rate and review this show so other people can find Seamside and learn more about the inner work of fabric. I'd really appreciate it. And you might also be interested in checking out the zine that I make after these conversations. I sit and ruminate and reflect about different things that came up, put them into this cute little printable, foldable zine. You can stick it in your back pocket and take it anywhere. So there's a link for that in the show notes if you like. And as always, thank you for listening. I appreciate your time. You know, we'll be sitting and sewing again before too long here on Seamside. Take care, sew something good.